Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Tuesday, August the 11th. Annika Smethurst is here. Good morning, Annika. Good to be with you, Tom. In a moment, we're going to hear your interview about what it's like to host a wedding in this crazy world we're living in. Yeah, it was quite a bit of, I don't know, a bit of panic and fear. Not that anyone would contract COVID, more that they would cop a fine. So you get a COVID marshal, potentially police turning up to your wedding. Would you host a wedding in this environment? As someone that's actually planning a wedding, look, it's definitely prompted a rethink. We're not getting married to March, but I just don't know if I like the idea of a marshal standing on the dance floor, but you'll find out later. All right, we'll get into that a little later on the show. Jan Fram will join you as well. First, let's get to the big stories of the day. First, some big news out of Lebanon overnight. The Prime Minister has announced that the entire government is resigning, blaming endemic corruption for last week's Beirut explosion, which has now killed 200 people. Yes, since it happened, tens of thousands of people have rallied at anti-government protests, storming several ministries over the weekend and demanding the entire government step down. Prime Minister Hassan Diab told reporters that the corruption in Lebanon is bigger than the state. He's actually planning to take a step back so he can stand with the people and fight the battle for change alongside them. Wow, yeah, it was just yesterday that you and Jan were talking about the protesters um, chanting in the streets uh, with the slogan, all means all, and it sounded like a very extreme call to have the whole government step down, but here we are a day later and they have. Yeah, look, tension's been building over there for a while. It's not just the explosion as we've covered in recent days. They were on the brink of economic collapse. Throw COVID into that and of course this tragic explosion and this is where we've ended up. An elderly woman locked inside a Melbourne aged care home has told the Aged Care Royal Commission most residents would rather be dead. Here's Mel Mitchell. I know I'm here till I die, so every morning when I wake up I think, damn, I've woken up. But I'm sure that if you really ask most people here, they would all say they would rather be dead rather than be living here. Oh, wow. Yesterday, commissioners heard that Australia's aged care coronavirus death rate is among the worst in the world, and the federal government just wasn't prepared. The evidence will reveal that neither the Commonwealth Department of Health nor the aged care regulator developed a COVID-19 plan specifically for the aged care sector. That was Peter Rosen QC. Now, close to 70% of Australia's COVID deaths have been in aged care, with more than 1,700 active cases in Victorian homes right now. Once again, some families have been unable to ascertain even whether their loved ones are alive or dead. That this can happen in Australia in 2020 is unacceptable. That it is happening again so soon after Newmarch House is unforgivable. Oh, this is a frustrating scenario to watch unfold, Annick. We've got a Royal Commission which, you know, they generally look at very deep... Um, long-term systemic issues in our society. But this is a tragedy that's unfolding right now. I think this has been a long time coming. There's a lot of people calling overnight saying that this COVID disaster has exposed some of the issues in aged care. But we've really been seeing this mount up for decades now. I've been writing about aged care for as long as I can think about. The fact they called a Royal Commission two years ago means they knew there was issues in these places. But to think that there wasn't even a COVID plan at the start of this when we had one for sport and everything else, it's just terrifying. Yeah. And then also just a general underlying demographic change in Australia with our ageing population, meaning more and more of our loved ones are in that age bracket where they need care. Queensland's fight to keep COVID out continues with two teenage girls arrested in Noosa for allegedly lying about getting a train from a hotspot. Yeah, Superintendent Craig Hawkins says the 15 and 16-year-olds who don't currently have any symptoms arrived in Brisbane from Sydney last Friday. They weren't completely honest with where they had been. 
But uh, later on, we discovered that they had come from the hotspot. In New South Wales, meantime, there were 14 new cases yesterday. Yeah, and five of them are linked to a cluster at Tangara Girls School in Sydney's northwest. Chief Health Officer Dr Kerry Chance says they're still trying to find the source of that outbreak. All students, staff and support staff of the secondary school are self-isolating for 14 days and being tested regardless of symptoms. And students of the primary school must monitor for symptoms and get tested if they develop. That's Kerry Chant there. So everyone in New South Wales closely watching uh, the results of the investigation into that outbreak and watching the numbers, of course. And in the last few days, Annika, the, the numbers have been looking a lot better in Victoria. Yesterday, we saw the biggest daily drop since the second wave began. Only 322 cases, all holding our breath there. Yeah, it's looking good in Victoria. They do take five-day averages, but it does look like that curve might be on its way down, fingers crossed. Yeah, and we're still seeing um, a pretty devastating death toll, 19 yesterday in Victoria, but the death toll generally lags behind the uh, infection numbers, so hopefully that'll start to uh, decline as well. Tom, catch you tomorrow. Jan Franz jumping in to talk all about weddings. I want you to imagine that you are at a wedding, but not just any wedding, a big, fat Lebanese wedding. If there are 300 people there, it's considered somewhat small. Uh, they're really large gatherings, lots of music, dancing from the beginning, lots of belly dancing, lots of high fives and kisses, three kisses. There's heaps of contact. Yeah, nothing like a COVID wedding. That's Antoinette. A week ago, she went to a wedding with her partner in Sydney but this time it was a little different. Oh, it was super interesting. Well, they had to obviously cap it at 150. This is for New South Wales. So they had to go and uninvite uh, a whole bunch of people, which is a you know bit of a curly exercise. At the church, for example, the priest was sweating a lot because he said, oh, you know, we've been warned twice by New South Wales police that we weren't adequately social distanced. So they were going around moving everybody. And um, yeah, it was quite a bit of, I don't know, a bit of panic and fear. Not that anyone would contract COVID, more that they would cop a fine. Yeah, right. And what was the reception like? That was really interesting because we were briefed before we got to the reception um, that we were not to dance um, and not to mingle. But if you so happen to pass somebody on your way to the toilet and spoke to them, um, keep a distance. Having said that, again, this this particular MC uh, had, had said that the police turned up the night before and they did a head count and they ensured that there weren't too many people sitting at tables or too many people at the wedding um, and inspected the dance floor. It was it was just strange. It was like it killed joy. It killed love. So who so, polices this? The police came the night before, but at the wedding you were at, is there a marshal? And, and how do you sort of, I guess, get that respect from the crowd that you really do need to follow the rules? Um, there was a security guard on the dance floor. Um, and so I went to speak to him and I was like, oh, so you're like the fun police. And he looked like <laughs> he hated himself because who wants that job, really? Um, but obviously he just wants any job. Um, so he'll do what he's told. The MC also said, look, if you you really want to dance at your table, please, no Facebook Live videos. So there was a sense that they could do <laughs> as much as they could and that if you were going to defy the rules, let's just make sure there's no video evidence of it. So the security guard that Antoinette is referring to is technically called a COVID-19 safety hygiene marshal, which is basically a person hired by a venue to make sure that patrons are social distancing correctly. Yeah, they also oversee the cleaning of venues and make sure that 
people are writing their names down, uh, that they've got enough hand sanitizer. They're at pubs and clubs and gyms and casinos, basically anywhere that serves food and drink. And that also includes weddings, sadly. John Elton has been an MC and event planner for over two decades. We asked him how his role has changed during COVID. It's changed considerably in that I've got to uh, almost act like the fun police in, in, in some cases. Um, but more often than not, uh, people are actually understa- are very understanding uh, and actually quite afraid to be at the wedding in the first place. In, in some cases, uh, the brides and grooms just want to get married. That's, that's all they want to do. But um, from my perspective, it's important that these restrictions are reiterated constantly. Mm. Uh, People's health is is very is is paramount in in this case, and um, and just because the bride and groom want to get married doesn't mean a, a guest is is quite comfortable being there. So when you say you have to sometimes act like the fun police, can you give us some examples? Yeah, I did a wedding last night. Funny enough, so last night was a you know the, their background. Uh, the bride was Turkish, the groom was Lebanese. Uh, quite a, a strong-headed crowd, regardless. Um, you got to restrict the dancing. You got to restrict the mingling, and it's hard. It's very, very hard for, for cultural uh, backgrounds like that to not mingle and not chat and not talk and and, and not shake hands and not kiss. Uh, but you make it quite, quite clear on a number of you know constantly throughout the night that hey, these are the rules. Please stick to them. Uh, if we break them and there is an outbreak, then it gets ruined for everybody else. Lebs love a good dance. They love a good dubka. They love a good set of drums. And it's actually a really integral part of the wedding, right? And I, I can just imagine that people would be um, a little bit up in arms about not being able to do that. Uh, so have you seen that sort of reaction from a lot of the weddings that you emcee? And how do you deal with it when people just refuse to listen to the rules? When you say integral, you're absolutely right. Lebanese think without drums, there's no wedding. Uh, other cultures think without a bridal waltz on entry, there's no wedding. But you're right, it's difficult for the Lebanese to actually understand um, these restrictions, especially when drummers are, are told to do a, a show rather than rev the crowd up to get actually to actually get on the dance floor and, and, and start the dancing throughout the night. You know, my job is to make sure that everyone's everyone's safe, uh, the venue's safe, the venue's licensing is kept uh, kept safe. Um, and if people break the rules, which I had a couple of weeks ago, I have to jump in and actually stop the music. Because uh, what, what we're trying to do with these weddings in this day and age is turn them into concerts rather than just a, a dancing segment within a wedding. Turning weddings into a concert is a creative way around the restrictions. I'll, I'll give him that. Nancy Baxter, who is head of the School of Population and Global Health at Melbourne Uni, reckons that creative thinking like that is necessary because weddings, while fun and important, are fertile ground for the virus to spread. There's so much that we don't know. Uh, I think we we can all acknowledge that. Uh, What we do know is that we think about 80% of coronavirus spreads from about 20% of people. And it tends to spread in what's called these super spreading events. Um, And weddings are high risk for being super spreading events. Uh, because, you know, you have many people coming together, if, particularly if they're indoors, um, and uh, people feel pressure to go to them. Um, that, not so much pressure externally, although that can happen, but, you know, it's a, it's a once-in-a-lifetime event. You want to be at the family wedding or the wedding of your good friend. So even if perhaps you're not feeling 100% well, you might go. Uh, And if you're in the bridal party or part of the bridal party, then then you really feel the need to go. Um, There was a wedding recently in India where the groom was pressured into continuing with his wedding, ended up dying two days later and spread it to 100 people. Uh, 
these are super spreading events. Other things like dancing, um, you know, there's no way to, unless you're doing line dancing, uh, maybe we'll all start doing country line dancing at weddings. That would be interesting. <laughs> what kind of dystopic picture are you painting here, yeah. Professor Baxter? <laughs> But, you know, the usual, uh, you know, first dance, the usual dance with your father, the, the bride's dance with the father. I mean, it, that kind of close contact is it just is going to increase the chance of, of coronavirus spreading and, and particularly singing. I mean, singing is a part of so many weddings and uh, and that that really can be a super spreading mm. um activity. So yes, I think that we will need to alter our behavior until coronavirus is well and controlled. Uh, And, you know, we may be living with coronavirus for some time yet. So I think that there's a new task for wedding planners, you know, how to make this safe and make it enjoyable. And I think there are lots of ways we can do that. So if we remove the singing and the dancing, is there still a risk at weddings? There's a lot of people getting together, a lot of uh, eating close by. Are they safe at all? Well, any activity we do, there's going to be some risk. I would say if you want to reduce the risk of weddings, having them outdoors, definitely important. Um, and uh, and there may be periods of time when just weddings are impossible. So obviously now with stage four in Melbourne, there's no way to have weddings. But, um, you know, it may depend on, on how much coronavirus there is in the community. Um, and that's difficult with weddings. You know, if you've planned a wedding for 300 people and suddenly, you know, you have to change those plans within, you know, two weeks, it, it becomes because the there's community spread um, uh, that's just happened in your region, uh, that becomes really challenging. How big a role does alcohol play here? Because when people drink, they tend to let their guard down, they get a bit sloppy, it might get a bit touchy-feely. Uh, yeah. You know, sh- should we be limiting alcohol consumption at weddings? Well, alcohol does lead to something called disinhibition, where, you know, all the things that are always going on in your brain that regulate your behavior, they get loosened up. Um, and I think it also makes us a lot more um, prone to or fall prey to um, peer pressure to do things. So maybe there's someone in the crowd that isn't a real believer in social distancing. So they become just more convincing when you've had a few. Um, so I think that might be something that could be done at weddings, but I, I think there are lots of other things that can be changed at weddings to just uh, reduce the chance of of the various activities that we know will increase the spread of COVID. Professor Nancy Baxter there from Melbourne University. Annika, how are you feeling hearing that, knowing that you are planning a wedding in March? Look, I must admit I'm a little bit nervous. I'm of the school of thought that if I can't dance at my wedding, if I can't have a few glasses of Shiraz, it is being held at a winery after all, Mm. then I really don't see the point. And I know that's not going to be how everybody feels. Some people just want small weddings. They just really want to get married. But the more and more I get sort of involved in the organisation, the more I realise I really do want to be out there on the dance floor and singing and, and having, you know, hugs with the people that I love. So look, it is making me a little bit nervous. March is a long way away, but I don't know how receptive I'm going to be of a COVID marshal standing on my dance floor. Yeah. Well, look, maybe you can turn your wedding into a concert. A concert, a magic show. (laughs) (laughs) Or you can elope. That's another option. Keep it in the back pocket. That's the backup, I think. Now, tomorrow on The Briefing, it's been a year since Jeffrey Epstein's death. What's happening with that case? We'll find out tomorrow. Subscribe to us at Podcast One Australia or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, the best way to support us is to, of course, tell your friends. Stay in touch at The Briefing Podcast.
a Podcast One production.